Thanks for listening to the podcast from Jonathan Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. Good morning, church. Wow, that was loud. Let me try that again. Good morning, church. So thankful for you. So happy you're here today. We are finishing our series in the book of Judges. I know. No tears today. I know it's been great. We're in our 12th week, and uh, this, is a, this has been a, a challenging series um, in a lot of ways, but also I've really enjoyed how the Lord has shown himself through it in spite of the fact that this, especially this week, is probably one of the least preached passages in all of Scripture. You're about to see why. Gen- Judges 19 through 21 is just pure chaos. Okay, and we're going to do a lot of reading today. Let me just go ahead and say this might be the longest amount of reading I'll ever do at church, but I think you're going to enjoy it. It's, it's, a, it's an, a very interesting narrative. It's very disturbing. It's like a horror movie at times. And at the same time, I think no, I have no doubt that the Lord is teaching us something through the story of his people and their brokenness. That's the story of the Bible in a lot of ways is we see the brokenness of people and yet we also see how God uses them in spite of their, their, their brokenness. He uses them in spite of the fact that they struggle just like he does with us. And so I've titled this sermon, Man-Made Morality. Now some of you were with us last week. I titled that one, Man-Made Religion. This is what we're seeing. We're seeing the complete just uh, falling apart, if you will, of the nation of Israel. They are longing for a king. They are longing for a justice. And all they're getting is pure chaos. And what we're seeing here is what happens when people turn inward to judge themselves rather than turning upward. That's really what, what 19 through 21 is all about. These last two stories, the one we covered last week and then this week, are really almost what you would call case studies on what happens when there are no godly savers, saviors and there's no really godly people. This is what will happen to a, a nation, what will happen to a people when no one steps up and follows the Lord. It's complete mess. After God has done all of this, if, if we were to just take a, a quick microscope approach and just kind of look through this, look what God has done, calls out Abraham, calls them to a greater place, calls out Moses, rescues his people from slavery, takes them through the wilderness, they win battle after battle, he gives them manna, he does all this miraculous stuff, Joshua comes into the land, they win victory after victory, they take walls down by blowing trumpets, crazy stuff's going down, even throughout the judges, amazing things, they light torches and break stuff and, and beat over 10,000 people. People with 300, just amazing things that God has done. And yet what we see here is they've completely forgotten all of it. They've forgotten all of it. They've forgotten the laws of God for sure, but they've even forgotten, it seems, what God is about entirely. How, how does this happen? Well, I believe Judges 19 through 21 is a really, it's for us, the church. It certainly was for the people of that day reading, but it's for us too to remind ourselves what will happen if we make the decision that God's best is not best for us, if we make the decision that this book is no longer relevant to us, if we make the decision that man's morality is better than God's, we will be this people. We are seeing now, and what we'll see as we read together, Israel has become like Canaan. Israel has become Sodom and Gomorrah. It's terrible. 
They misunderstand, they disobey God's word. And there's really two key points. The way that book judge, the book of Judges ends, it, 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 both say, it says this to begin our chapter today and also to end the book today. In those days, there was no king. There's no human king. There's no acknowledgement of God as king. There's no ruler. No one's in charge. You know, some people think, hey, this will be a good idea for a nation. It's like, let's not have anybody in charge. No, here's what that would look like. It ain't great. It's a mess. Anarchy is not what we're looking for. But worse than that is that there's no acknowledgement of their God. They were meant to be a righteous theocracy. And they're nowhere near it. Nowhere near it. And also it says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Their morality is based on whatever they deem fit. Can you think of any better description, I would argue, any better description than the condition of our nation today? I can't really think of a better description. There is no king, and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Sure, we have governments. Sure, we have people in charge. But we are more and more moving towards a man-made morality in this place. Where it's just whatever makes you feel good, whatever seems right. We have so moved past God's word. And so much of our nation was founded on Judeo-Christian values. But we are moving very swiftly from that. So... (laughs) This might be a case study to really pay attention to today as our world is changing. Moral relativism rather than absolute claims. But you know what? This funny thing you'll hear people argue for moral relativism, but the problem is it in itself is still an absolute claim. It, if everything is relative, everything is based on what you think, it's merely replaced God for culture. There's still a source, and that source now is your own personal truth. That means you still believe everything I think and feel is true. So you're still an absolutist in a really weird way. We all tend towards this. Yeah, we can look at the the world around us, but let's also internalize this. As you should with any good word, word moment with the Lord. You should look, or what does this have to do with me? Who remembers saying this to their parents or, or remembers their kids saying this to them? But mom and dad, everybody's doing it. I've said that. I'm, I know my kids will say that. Hey, mom and dad, everybody's doing it. And, and my, you've heard this before. My dad used to say, well, if somebody jumps off a cliff, are you going to follow them too? That's like the old statement. Yeah, I might if there's water down there because I like cliff diving, dad. I'm that kid. You don't, wanna, you don't want that kid in your life. But mom and dad, everybody's doing it. Everyone's doing it. And then as adults, we don't tell anybody this, but we still live this way. You know, everybody needs the white picket fence. Everybody's keeping up with the Joneses. Everybody has to cut corners in order to to be successful. And we start falling into these very same dangers of man-made morality. And you might ask people, I would encourage you from time to time, ask your neighbors, ask your coworkers, you know, a very hard question. Where, Where do you think, what's next when you die? You know, it's maybe don't just walk up to the water cooler and ask that. Maybe work your way into it, but... What happens next? Where do you go when you die? And what you'll hear from most people is, I've lived a pretty good life. I've been pretty good. On whose standards? Who decides what is good? What does it look like to be successful? Is it your standards, God's, the culture's? So what do we do? Let's dig in today. We're going to be in Judges chapter 19 to describe why man-made morality doesn't please God. But something more than that, that God's morality actually solves our problems rather than the stuff we create, which some, just you'll see from this story, but you could look at your own life. Every time you come up with creative solutions that aren't very righteous, don't you compound the problem? 
doesn't it just get worse when you try to solve it without God's help? I've observed that in my life. So here we are in Judges 19, and we're going to see three reasons why man-made morality does not please God. Big bite, Judges 19 through 20, verse 7. Listen to this, y'all. In those days, there was no king in Israel. A certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judea, in Judah, which is odd, just so you know, that's odd already. Verse 2, his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there for four months. Then her husband arose and went after her. Now, I don't know why it took him four months, but he finally chased. To speak kindly to her and to bring her back. And he had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. And she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay. And he remained with him three days. So they ate and they drank and they spent the night there. On the fourth night, they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them, they sat, and they ate, and they drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night, and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said yet again to him, Behold, now the day has waned towards evening. Please spend the night. Wow, okay. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall rise early in the morning for your journey and go home. Verse 10, but the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is, later to be called Jerusalem. He had with him a a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside into the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, Oh no, we're, we're not turning aside into that city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come and let us draw near to one of the places and spend the night either Gibeah or, or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And when... And and he went in and he sat down in the open square of the city and no one took them in to the house to spend the night. That's noteworthy. Verse 16, so behold, an old man was coming from, from his work in the field at evening. The man was also from the hill country of Ephraim and he was also sojourning in Gibeah. So they share something in common there. The men of the place there were Benjamites. Now the old man, he... He lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And he said, where are you going? And where do you come from? And he said to him, hey, we're passing passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. And went to Bethlehem and Judah. And I am now going to the house of the Lord. But no one, no one's taken me into the house. Now that's an odd thing for us to think about. But just just know there's no hotels (laughs) 
We're, we're not dealing with the same culture. We're, if you went into the open square, somebody, normally the law of hospitality of that day, somebody would say, oh, do you need somewhere to stay? And come take you in and feed you. It's just the way people lived. It's actually pretty cool, pretty amazing. But here, there's, there's no good hospitality. So, verse 19, we have straw, we have feed for our donkeys, we have bread, we have wine for me and, a, and the female servant and the young man with, with your servants. There's, there's no lack of anything. And so the man said, the old man said, peace be to you. I will care for all of your wants. Only do not spend the night, do not spend the night in this square. Trust me. And he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed and they washed their feet and ain't ate and drank. Now, the story is about to go from strange and PG to MA. I mean, there's no transition. This is really bad. Here you go, church. Verse 22, as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and he said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man is, this man is coming to my house. Do not do this vile thing. Oh my goodness, listen to this, church. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and, and abused her all night until the morning. Wow. And, and as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell at the door of the master's, the man's house, where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning. And when he opened the doors of the house, he went out to go on his way, and behold, there was his concubine laying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, wow, he said to her this, get up, let's, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his house. And when he entered his house, he took a knife. And taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces. And sent her throughout the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, as you and I will say now, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. So then all the people of Israel, they came out from Dan to Beersheba, the whole nation, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people, of all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God. 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the, the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin. I am my concubine to spend the night. And the leaders, the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me and they violated my concubine and she is now dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her into pieces and sent her throughout the country of the inheritance of Israel for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel." 
Behold, you people of Israel, all of you give your advice and counsel here. Let's pause there. And you're thinking to yourself, good luck preaching that. And you'd be right. It took me all day to go, I don't have a clue what to do with this passage of Scripture. But here's what I believe is happening in this opening section. How man-made morality, everybody's doing what they want, what they think is right in their own eyes. And it begins, what it does is it seeks to shift blame rather than admit guilt. Man-made morality seeks to shift blame rather than admit guilt. Now this whole opening section is about a Levite who is doing a lot of stuff wrong. Now don't get me wrong, we're not going to overlook this awful, horrible thing that happens in Gibeah with the Benjamites. Terrible. There's no getting around it. But this Levite himself is already a mess. I couldn't really find this anywhere that there's, there's an allowance necessarily for concubines. This whole, this whole thing of the Old Testament is odd. Abraham doesn't do it, uh, although his, his wife Sarah gives him uh, her, her servant at a point and ends up being a real big problem. Uh, but you start seeing these, this, this idea of the concubine, which is not a true wife. Imagine this as a woman. like You're basically property, but more. Uh, your, your friends with benefits? I, this is so strange. This is really weird. And, and I don't see anywhere that the Lord necessarily endorses this in any way. Uh, but here's a Levite who's supposed to be of the priestly class has purchased this. That already feels, that should have raised a red flag right away. This Levite does not appear to be living appropriately. And his wife, this concubine, has run off. He waits four months to go after her, whether it's For a season, he's like, well, I don't really miss her. Or for a season, he's like, maybe she'll come back. I don't know. The Bible describes her as unfaithful. The King James goes a lot further and says she's playing the whore. Wow, okay. But the word there literally means to to be like a harlot, which could mean she's... It could mean that she's been promiscuous, sure. But it could also mean that she uh, just has run away from him as playing the role of a runaway, if you will. Uh, I think the ESV does a pretty good job by saying she's unfaithful. Uh, for whatever reason, she has removed herself. And then he shows up to get her, and they all welcome him in. I find that so, so unusual. And then the father-in-law, this feels uncomfortable as you read it, like he just keeps making the man stay and stay and stay. But most of the things I read about this, uh, I think it's supposed to meant, it's, it's there to, to be meant to contrast two really terrible things. So on the one hand, you've got this father-in-law who does the right thing by being over-the-top hospitable. Now, some of you have run into this before. You ever ran into somebody who's really got high hospitality? They will work themselves to death for you and keep telling you that and offering you more. And at some point, you just have to say no and move on. It's not because there's something wrong with them. It's their gifting but they will literally kill themselves for you. And, uh, and at the end of the day, if you don't eventually say no, you're actually going to put a lot of strain on this relationship because this person does not know how to stop serving. It's a really a great gifting. However, what's happening here is the man is <laughs> he's having a hard time saying no and moving on. So the Bible puts that in there to describe this is what hospitality should, should look like. You go into the square, people offer you into their home, and they'll keep saying, hey, just stay over. They don't necessarily mean it, all right? They don't. 
I'm this way too. And, and just so you know, like if you come over, yeah, just keep staying, hang out. But, but trust me when I say I'm an introvert. And I'm happy when you leave. But I love you, okay? So, but just know this, I'm never going to say, hey, you guys got to get out of the house. Now, my small group, we've been hanging out with each other for a couple of years now. We're starting to get to that point where I'm like, y'all, y'all got to get out of here. Like, come on. But normally I'm not going to do that. That's what's happening there. And so then he runs off to Gibeah and, and he, he, he bypasses Jebus. All of this is meant to really just key us and cue us in to go, okay, he's avoiding foreigners because Jebus should be dangerous, right? The people of God aren't there and he is mistaken. He would have been safer amongst foreigners. He's mistaken when he finds out that my, my very brothers, the very tribe of Benjamin, is filled with horrible, worthless, the Bible says, individuals that are out to, to kill and pillage and rape and destroy. What a horrible thing. He thinks he's going to be safer. He's wrong. And he shows up, and the Bible describes these men of Benjamin as worthless fellows. The, the literal translation there is sons of Belial. These are worthless, wicked, evil men. And some people would look at this translation and go, well, I don't know what verse 22 means. I got news for you. I know what verse 22 means when it says they want to know him. That's, that's in the biblical sense. The, the word there means to know carnally. Just the exact same word is used throughout the Old Testament to describe things like Genesis chapter 4.1. It says, and Adam knew his wife and she conceived. It doesn't mean, hey, we got to know each other better. That's not what's going on here, okay? And for some reason, the Levite at the end, and we're going to talk more about that, he decides to tell the people who are questioning him, yeah, they meant to kill me. Actually, no, it's far worse. They meant to, to completely abuse you. So instead, here's what they do. Can you imagine this, fathers? Fathers in the room, husbands in the room. Can you imagine offering your daughter and your wife in your place, this is where Israel has gotten. This is not what right looks like. This is not what would have happened down in Judah. This is not what happens later in the, in the family of David. One of his sons rapes one of his stepdaughters. It's a precarious situation. Guess what the other boys do? They go out and they murder him. Now all of that's bad. But look, at least you're starting to see that where there's some truth applied... Men don't allow that. They don't do that. The men of Judah would have been baffled by this. They're not allowing that down there. But up here, I'm telling you, it has gotten so bad that, okay, you take my place. Who seizes the concubine here? Is it the old man? No, it is the man who sees his, his own. He just went out of his way to recover her, and this is the first thing he does. It's, it's awful. Throws her out instead. Locks the door behind him. Apparently goes to bed. And sleeps the night. I'm baffled by this Levite. He's not a representation of, of God. At all. And look how he speaks to her when he comes out. The next day she has somehow crawled home. After a whole night of just tremendous pain and difficulty. She's got her hands on the threshold of the door. And he simply says get up. Let's get going. This is a terrible scene. So calloused. Had he written her off? I don't know. How did he sleep through the night? Had, had he no concern for her? I think maybe my, the only thing I can say is he must have thought she was dead. He must have assumed, that's it. I'll never see her again. And so when he sees her that morning, I, 
I would have done none of this, but had I done up till this point, I know I would have showed some more concern for this tremendous, terrible thing. But no. And what does he do as he takes her home? He begins to break more of his Levite vows because they're not supposed to be touching dead, dead humans and things like that. And yeah, they handle the sacrifices of the temple, but this, is, this shouldn't be done. And if I love you, I'm going to bury you. <laughs> I'm going to appropriately mourn you and bury you. No, he cuts her up and sends her to the 12 tribes. Aren't y'all glad you came to church today? Some of you are like, you've only come a handful of times, and you're like, I'm never coming back. This is crazy. Hey, I didn't make this up. It's in the Word of God. This is the Bible. And he has something to teach us in this tremendously terrible section. He left it in there on purpose. Some people say, you know, this Bible thing is false. Look, if it was false, I promise you it would have left out stuff like this. The fact that it includes some of this terrible stuff is evidence, I think, for the actuality of it. Because guess what's happened throughout human history? Terrible atrocities like this. All over the world. And the Bible doesn't sugarcoat it. Instead, it talks to us and tells us what we ought to do with it. And tells us how to face man-made morality. Such a thing, verse 30, has never happened. Well... Not in the nation of Israel, but guess what? It is almost an exact parallel to Genesis 19. Genesis 19 is Sodom and Gomorrah. This story is so closely paralleled that I don't think it's ironic. I think the narrator is purposely comparing the two so that we would go, Israel has become Sodom. That's why he puts it in here, this specifically. You can go back and read Genesis 19. This is where the angels come to visit Lot and men show up to know them. And Lot offers daughters just like this. It's horrible. And yet this time the angels protect them and blind them in at the door. And then the scene goes on and God burns down the city. And his wife looks back, turns into a pillar of salt. It's, it's fabulous, amazing stuff and terrible too. It's a complete parallel so that we would go, look how bad Israel has gotten. So then verse 1, chapter 20, the people are showing up. It says, as one man, the leaders of Gibeah, the leaders of, of, of Israel have showed up against the leaders of Gibeah. And, and this is where the story gets even weirder. Now he blame shifts. So the Levite, look, the men of Benjamin have screwed up. They're taking no guilt. As we're going to see in this scripture, the Benjamites are actually going to shield them and decide to defend these horrible people. They won't take the blame, admit the guilt. What should be happening is these people are brought out in, in, in capital punishment in front of the whole nation. That's what should be happening, but it's not going to be what happens. And what should be happening is the Levites should be telling them, hey, these men, they meant to violate me. This horrible thing happened. I was already in the wrong. I shouldn't have been there. I shouldn't have been doing half of what I was doing. And you know what I absolutely shouldn't have done? I shouldn't have thrown my dear concubine out. I just went. I just spent all this time getting her back. Man, he takes no blame for any of that. He rewrites the story in his own mind. Now, I can tell you something that all negative personality types have in common. And before you go, well, I know such and such. They're just like that. Look, you've got some of these. We've all got some negative personality traits. Some of them, I'll give you just a handful of them. There's, there's the narcissist. There's the egocentric. There's the pessimist. There's, there's the one who is, is overly greedy. There's the one who defends everything. They're just defensive. There's like a list of like 20 of these I was looking through. Some people call this the dark triad, in fact, the the one who is both Machiavellian, is, is also narcissistic, and psychopathic. Now, we often like to say, well, psychopathic. That's for the really weird weirdos. You'd be surprised how some of these tendencies you share, we all have these negative types. And here's one thing that they all seem to have in common. 
the inability to apologize. The inability to confess. You are running into people in your life all of the time that can't say sorry. And maybe you're one of them. Some of you grew up in households that never demanded this. Your parents never demanded this of you. I did. You better say you're sorry. There was the hug and makeup times. It was so uncomfortable. Now, tell your brother you're sorry. Now, go give him a hug. And if it was my sister, it was even worse. It was like they just raised it a notch. Now, give her a hug and a kiss on the cheek. I, don't, I would rather slap her cheek, Dad, than kiss her cheek. <laughs> I love my little sister now, but boy, it was a struggle when we were growing up. Say you're sorry. Say you're sorry. Apologize. We're going to overcome. That's good parenting. We're going to overcome your natural tendency to defend yourself and place blame everywhere else. The Levites like, everybody else is the problem here, not me. You just cut up this woman into 12 pieces. You ought not have been doing that. No blame. No, I mean, no, no admission of guilt. Rather, it's blame shifting, blame shifting. This is our culture. This is what we're running into. This is your neighbors. This is your coworkers. At times, this is you. And the greatest thing you could possibly, be, could possibly do to heal, could possibly do to, to, to be more mature and to get your life back in order is to finally say, I'm a mess. I've made mistakes. Because guess what you can never overcome? The mistakes you've made that you never called that. The, the mistakes that you go on doing that you never go ahead and say, that's bad. That's bad. I need to stop that. You can't overcome those things that you go, well, you know, I need to do this or otherwise I'm going I'm to have a mental break, you know, if I don't go on being an alcoholic, if I don't, if I don't go on treating people with anger, if I don't go on mistreating others. If there's, there's some list of things that you, that you do in order to cope. And the very reason you can't overcome them is because you can't seem to say that's sin. That's a problem. And now the nation of Israel as a whole, as one man, is dealing with this idea that they have completely moved on from God's law to some kind of chaos. Look at Proverbs chapter 28. It says, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Admitting our guilt to God, He is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us. This is, this is now what we do as Christians. Yes, Christ Jesus has made the, pay, the payment. Yes, Christ Jesus has died on the cross for our sin. It is done, it is dealt with. But guess what? You can continue to break fellowship with God by not admitting your sin. By continuing to live in it and not saying, All right, God, I agree. That's what repentance is more than anything, is saying, I agree with you, God, that this right here I should not do. That's the beginning of repentance. First John chapter 1, it says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is what God is doing. But do you see the, the small human effort? Uh, we had a series earlier in the year, and this kind of came back to my mind this week, is God's grace is not opposed to effort. You can't earn God's grace through effort, but it's not opposed to effort. Because look, there is a human effort here. It is confession. I have to come before God and say, I'm not okay. I'm not okay, God. I desperately need your help. And we don't get over this in this life. <laughs> 
I think as we grow as mature believers, if, if we're maturing in Christ, we simply see the depth of our sin. And it begins, now we begin, begin to unpack the next thing. We turn the page and go, okay, God, me and you have dealt with that. But what I didn't realize was this was under there. Let's deal with that together. That's what it looks like to constantly be in confession of sin. Stop blaming others for your sins. Some of you, boy, this could unpack your, your, your life right now. You're in such struggle. You're, in, you're having difficulty in your marriage. You're having difficulty as a child with your parents or as a parent with your children or with a coworker, with your boss. And if you could just step back for a minute and look at the way you've been communicating with everybody, the way that you've been interacting, you might be able to finally go, all right, I'm not being honest. I'm not being honest with my brokenness. Your spouse better than anybody can observe it. And maybe it gets old them telling you, you know, you, you're, kind of, you're kind of screwing this up. I'm sure that gets old, husbands, wives, when your, your spouse who knows you better than anybody is like, you really ought not be saying that, be doing that. And you're like, you begin to just avoid it altogether. But rather, be introspective today. Stop blaming others for the things you need to confess. All right, let's continue in chapter 20, the longest bite of the day. And this one I'm going to really blitz through, okay? Because there's a lot of like battle and chaos and let's move. Verse 8, it says, All the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent. None of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot, and we will take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel. A hundred out of a thousand, and a thousand out of ten thousand. Remember, they brought four hundred thousand, so they're going to bring ten percent. To bring provisions for the people that when they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city and united as one man. Okay, so far that that makes sense. I'm with them. Verse 12, And the tribes of Israel sent men throughout all the tribe of Benjamin saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore... Give up those men, those worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. So far, this sounds just. But the Benjamites. The Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities of Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin, they mustered out of their city on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword. Besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Now we talked about this earlier in the Bible. uh, that The word here could mean ambidextrous. It's meant to indicate that these people can possibly fight with both hands. This This is something. And it goes on to say, every one of them could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Okay, we got crack shots. The crack shots of Benjamin. This is meant, this is in there to tell us this is going to be rough. This isn't going to go well. Verse 17, the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, then mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. So it looks like Israel's going to have no problem. Wrong. Verse 18, the people of Israel, they arose and they went up to Bethel and they inquired of God, who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Then the people of Israel, they, they rose in the morning, they encamped against Gibeah, and the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. And the men of Israel, they drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah. Then the people of Benjamin, they came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. 
But the people, the men of Israel, they took courage. And they again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and they wept before the Lord until evening. And they inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against them. This is interesting. So the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went against them out of Gibeah the second day and destroyed again 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel. And they wept. And they sat before the Lord. And they fasted that day until evening. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel, they inquired of the Lord, for the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? Or shall we cease? The Lord says something different this day. Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. So Israel set an ambush around Gibeah. And the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Gibeah as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. They've pulled them out this time. And as at other times, they began to strike and kill some of the people in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah and into the open country about 30 men of Israel. And the people of Benjamin, they said to themselves, they are routed before us as at the first. But the people of Israel said, let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamor. And the men of Israel who were in ambush rushed out of the place from Mareh-Gibi. And and there came against Gibeah 10,000 chosen men out of Israel. And the battle was hard, but the Benjamites did not know that their disaster was close upon them. And the Lord defeated. The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. And these were men who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel, they gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. Then the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. The men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men of the main ambush was that they would make a great cloud of smoke rise out of the city. Then the men of Israel would turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. And they said, surely they are defeated before us. As in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjamites looked behind them, and behold, the whole city went up and smoked to heaven. Then the men of Israel, they turned, and the men of Benjamin were dismayed, for they saw the disaster was close upon them. Therefore, they turned their backs against the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them. Those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst. Surrounding the Benjamites, they pursued them and trod them down from Nohah as far as opposite Gibeah on the east. 18,000 men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor. And they turned and they fled towards the wilderness of the rock of Ramon. And 5,000 men of them were cut down on the highways. And they were pursued hard to get them. And 2,000 of them were struck down. 
So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword. All of them men of valor. But 600 men, keep note of that church, 600 men turned and fled towards the wilderness to the rock of Ramon and remained at the rock of Ramon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword. The city, the men, the beasts, all that they found, all the towns that they found, they set on fire. Let's pause there. The second thing, the the first was it seeks to blame rather than admit. Now it begins to seek vengeance rather than justice. Man-made morality seeks vengeance rather than justice. This is what we have here. This story begins correctly. They come out and they say this dreadful thing has happened in Gibeah. You guys need to send these worthless fellows up out here so that we can publicly punish them in front of the nation. This should be what happens. Instead, Benjamin decides to harbor these men, these criminals. Now, whether it is that Benjamin does not believe this truth, or it is that blood is simply thicker, that they're, this one's a challenging word for me personally, but like, how far do you go when you're defending your family? Right? The Benjamites defend their family To the bitter end, in spite of the fact that these were terrible criminals. You kind of got to know that balance, Christian, of when your family's gone too far and you need to rebuke them. Here they inquire of the Lord three times. This is a difficult story on a lot of levels. It's difficult because it tells us from two different angles. It might have sounded like I repeated the passage twice. The reason is, one side seems to be from Israel's point of view, the other from Benjamin's. That the narrator gives us both points of view in these scriptures. And so that there's this smoke, there's this big battle, there's this big pursuit. But but beyond all of that is the challenging piece of what God is doing. The Lord has mentioned, Yahweh has mentioned many times in this scripture. And what's troubling for you and me, believer, is that they come inquiring of the Lord first time. God, who shall go first? God says, Judah, go first. They go and they get their butts whooped. But God, and we go and they weep before the Lord and they say, surely Yahweh Should we go? Yes, you shall go. Second time, another loss. Why are we taking all these L's, God? I don't know what's going on. They come the third time, it says the whole nation or the the whole group comes up. All 400,000 mighty men come up to Bethel with the Ark of the Covenant. They're weeping, they're making burnt offerings. It's like, okay, we're doing all of it. We got to get this thing right with God. And then God. Gives them the day. What's going on there? Well, this causes me to ask a lot of why questions because sometimes, friends, and I know you do this too, you come inquiring of God and you think you've heard an answer or or you think He sent you on a mission and it doesn't go so well at first. I've been on a lot of those missions where, God, I thought you told me to talk to such and such. Did you see how that conversation just went, God? It didn't go well. I thought that was you. You know, it was him, actually. And he's not just helping me work on others. He's not just guiding me. He's working on me still. He's not done working on me. And the people of Israel have gone so far away from God that he's allowing some hard, he's allowing some difficulty to draw them back towards what? At the end of the day, I guess he's drawing them back to complete trust, to complete worship. 
Notice their first question. First of all, they don't even say Yahweh. It says they inquire of Elohim. They don't even come with his covenantal game. Hey, his covenantal name. They just say, "Hey God, who should go first? They haven't asked him, "Should we do this?" Should because guess what, Christian? This should be the first thing you ask God before you go fight a battle. Should I do this? No, they don't even ask that part. God, we, we already, God, we already know we need to do this. You and I know. We know. I just want to know how to do it. And God's like, okay, I'll tell you how to do it. Judah should go first. You're about to get your teeth kicked in, but Judah can go first. <laughs> Judah goes first and gets their teeth kicked in. Okay, that seems problematic. Now, the second one, that one's the one that challenges me. Because they come saying, surely God, Yahweh, covenantal God, shall we go up against them again? This one's the one in the mix where I think God is teaching them trust again. And then what is it teaching us? Just because God has, has, has sent you on mission or just because God is answering prayers does not mean the journey is going to be without any pain. That, that's a bad assumption for you to make, that the Christian life will be completely carefree. That would do you no good, friend. It would do you no good to have no challenge. You've seen movies like this, where the conflict is just so unrealistic, or the hero is so great that they're never challenged. Those are called rotten tomatoes. You don't like those movies. Why? Because they're unrealistic. We need heroes with flaws. Why? Because we have flaws. Some of you might like the movie Captain Marvel in here. You're wrong. It's just not a good movie. The reason it's not a good movie is because she's never been challenged the whole time. The whole movie, she's beyond great and no one can defeat her. And I hate that movie. And so do you in your heart of hearts. But it's a woman and she's powerful. There's a lot of powerful woman characters throughout the Bible and throughout superhero world. They still have problems. These super-powered women I run into all the time are wonderful people. Guess what? I've, every one of them's got problems. I got problems. And here we come to this story. There's challenge. They're taking losses. The third time, finally, they inquire of the Lord. They bring their full worship, and God shows up. I don't know if he was waiting on them to see if they would come with their whole heart. Jeremiah says, when you seek me with you, your whole heart, there you will find me. Maybe they just weren't giving it their all. And, they, and God just wants to know, are you guys really serious about me? Are you all ser- Am I just Santa Claus to you, or do you really want a relationship? I don't know. That's what I see when I read this text. And that's what I've seen in my own life, is God just wants to know, are you good with me even if I don't give you anything? Are you good with just having a relationship with the king of the universe, with the savior of the world, the one who set you free and sacrificed for you in spite of your sin? Is that enough for you, or do you need more handouts? I don't. And I apologize, Lord, before your people that I come wondering whether or not you're good to me in spite of all of these things that you've already done. And I'm okay with the fact that sometimes there will be losses because God's still molding me and shaping me. And this is what they do in response. God finally gives them today and they turn justice to vengeance. God never tells them completely wipe out the tribe of Benjamin. He never says that. He never says, hey, go from town to town and kill everything in the city. Do you see God saying that? No, here's what happens. They lost two battles and they got their feelings hurt. 40,000 men of Israel, it's no small number. These were brothers. These were friends. These were family members. And they got their feelings hurt. And they said, we're going to do more than wipe out Benjamin. We're going to do more than punish Gibeah, the worthless fellows. No, we're going to burn every city... From Gibeah to Ramon, 10 miles of destruction. 
That's where justice becomes vengeance. Quoting Deuteronomy 32, the, the Apostle Paul says, Beloved, Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I wonder this, church, do you seek justice in your personal life or vengeance? I know this, friends. I know people wrong you. Your coworkers, your bosses, sometimes your family, they wrong you. And your heart, <laughs> your broken heart sometimes, wants more than justice. It wants vengeance. You would never say this out loud because I know you're good Christian people. But like if, if someone stole your cell or someone, you don't just want, you know, to steal a cell back from them. or No, you want their business to burn to the ground. That's what you really want. And you might tell your spouse that, you know, I hope, I, I don't, and you'll, you'll preface it, I hope, I'm not wishing them any will, ill will, but, you know, I kind of hope they get on a car wreck on, on the way to work. I just, well, that's not ill will. Really? Like, just listen to your friends and family sometimes. Like, I mean, I'm not saying I want something bad to happen. I just hope they die. Huh? Do you want justice or vengeance? It's okay to desire justice, but here's what the scriptures, here's what we are as Christians. It says that the Lord will repay. Vengeance is his. Justice is what we seek. Man-made morality, it always leads to this. It leads to mob rule. It leads to this crazy thing that happens in our nation all the time now. Somebody dies in some city thousands of miles away and the whole, the whole nation decides to riot and blow up half the city. It's insanity. It's not justice, it's vengeance. And we do this as a people. Let me read this final chapter. It's shorter, don't worry. And it's wild. Verse 1, Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, No one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. We're not marrying into that chaos anymore. And the people came to Bethel and they sat till evening before the Lord and they lifted up their voices and they wept bitterly. Look what they're weeping. Look at this, verse 3. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? They're praying and almost saying to God, why did this happen? Well, if I was God here, I'd be like, you did it. You, you you're why this happened. You killed all these people. They're weeping bitterly. God, what are we going to do about it? Verse 4, and the next day the people rose early and they built an altar and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, notice this, nowhere does God tell them what to do. That's key, because here's what they do. They said, which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly of the Lord? For they, they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother. And they said, one tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those? They only have 600 men left. That's how exacting their vengeance was. 600 men, no women and children remain. This is terrible. What are we going to do for them? They need wives. Verse 7, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give any daughters of ours to them. Okay, so we're not going to break our vow. Let's just get that right. This is a nation that doesn't break vows. Remember to Jephthah? Oh, oh, good old Judge Jephthah made a vow. I'm going to kill whatever comes out of my house, and he kills his own daughter. Break the vow, dude. No, they don't want to break the vow. We're not giving our daughters to Benjamin. Let's instead do this, verse 8. What, is, what one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah? And behold, no one had come up to the camp from Jabesh Gilead. To the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of their inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 
12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every man and every woman that has lain with a male, you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by laying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. So let's go murder a whole bunch of people. This is how we're going to solve our problem. We're going to murder a bunch of people, and we're going to steal 400 girls. Sadly, it's not enough. There's 600 men. We only found 400. Verse 13. The whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin who were at the rock of Ramon and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time and they gave them the women whom they saved alive of the women of Jabesh Gilead. But they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because of the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Verse 16. So the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said... There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out of Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters. For the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, behold, there's a yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go... Lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch if the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances. Then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife. What in the world? Snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say, Hey, grant them graciously to us because we did not take for each of them his wife in battle. Neither did you give them to him to them. Else you would now be, be guilty. So the people of Benjamin did so, took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. Verse 25, in those days... There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. God bless the reading of his word. Amen. (laughs) Here's the last and final point. I must move quite swiftly, in fact. Because it seeks its own righteousness rather than God's. It seeks, number one, it seeks blame rather than to admit it. Number two, number two was, my, my brain is becoming mush. It seeks vengeance rather than justice. And then number three, it seeks its own righteousness rather than God's. This is what I began the sermon talking about. And that is the idea that when you try to solve your problems your way rather than God's way, you only make them way worse. And so the, the problem they've made now is they've, they've, in their vengeance, wiped out almost a whole tribe. And they come before the Lord weeping and saying, look what we've done. Why has this happened? But they don't wait to see if God has anything to say about it. So instead, what do they do? This story, in, this, this story ends much like it begins. It begins with this idea of, of rape and murder. And then it ends with murder and rape. It's terrible. It's terrible because man's solution to man-made problems is more man-made problems. 
You don't have to look very far in your own life to see this is true. How are we going to, to solve this problem or that in our nation, whether it's, it's poverty or whether it's, it's this? If we're not coming at it with God's solution, we'll often make more people more impoverished. And we'll often make what we were trying to solve even worse by enabling the problem or something. No, if they'd have come before the Lord, I think the Lord might have said, Hey, you guys made a vow I didn't ask for, just so you know. Now, I never said, hey, go make a vow that no one can give daughters to Benjamin. Also, I didn't tell you to kill them all. Also, by the way, I never said go kill Jabesh Gilead just because they didn't show up. Instead, they do all that. They compound their problem. So what do they do? They wipe out a whole people, a genocide in Jabesh Gilead. They steal their daughters, 400 virgins. Then they go and just let them steal these poor young girls that are dancing at Shiloh. Man, this is a good piece of scripture to remind us that the, the, the world has always been dark. There's always been problems. You can't look at the earth today and say, hey man, things are worse than ever. No, I think thing, we're just more aware of all the things that are going on. They've been going on since the beginning of sin. It's been terrible for a while and we've been desperate, just in desperate need of Jesus for a long time. We're so thankful that we have him now. It is, it's, it's written here in those days, they did what was evil. Isaiah 5, it says, Woe to those who, shall, who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This is what's happening here. Let's solve our problems with more problems. Let's, let's solve the problem of rape and murder with more of the same. Yet our attempts at man-made morality lead to death. They don't solve our sin problem. This is still true, church. Nothing has changed in the sense that these sin problems we face in our personal lives, that we face in our culture, we can't solve them by our effort. That's the story of judges in a nutshell. There was no king. People did what they wanted. Same is true in our culture now. And yet there is a king. And the question is, do you serve him? The question is, is he your king? Proverbs 14, it says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Isaiah 64 says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. This is the nature of man apart from the Savior. And yet the Apostle Paul reminds us of this. As he's looking at the Jews who have now fallen into this ditch of legalism, if you will. He says in Romans 10, I testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. That's where our righteousness lies. Not in our own foolish thoughts. Not in our own human ways. This is what makes people great. This is what makes nations great when they follow Christ Jesus. It's, it's not because people individually are just smarter or better or wiser. No, it's that our Savior, Lord Jesus, is all of those things and more. Stop thinking you're good enough to please God as the people do here, they come weeping bitterly, but then they don't ask his opinion at all. They don't put their trust and faith in him. He's won for them this great victory, and they've already moved on again. All right, the problem's solved. All right, God, I don't need you anymore. And we do this all the time as Christians. I've got this terrible, terrible thing happening in my life. God, help me through it. He helps you through it. See you later, God. See you at the next tragedy. 
And then they create more tragedy for themselves. As we conclude this book, and I know some of you in here are sad to see it go. Some of you in here are like, praise Jesus, it's over. As we conclude this book, though, I'm reminded of one of Tim Keller, who passed away a few weeks ago, who's I've heard described recently as a pastor's pastor. I've heard some people say, other pastor friends of mine say, we feel like our pastor died. And I'm thankful for his work. But Tim, Tim Keller once wrote, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. This is true in us. We are the people of Israel. We are just like the people in the time of Judges, except... We have been set free and saved by a Savior. And we have a King. And we have a righteous judge. All of these things are true, so we don't have to live as them. We live for Christ and no one else. We need a Savior, and we have Him. Will you stop shifting blame and start admitting guilt? Confess your sins, both before the Lord and before others, and see God move in a life-changing way. Understand that God is the only one you can trust for justice. Let vengeance be His. Don't take these matters into your own hands. And lastly, stop trying to earn God's favor through your own righteous attempts. They are filthy rags, as Isaiah said. No, follow him. His righteousness is yours. Let's pray together now, church. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your people today. I pray that you would just impress whatever word you have for them in their hearts right now. Yes, there was a lot of text to cover today. Yes, there was a lot of things that were extremely challenging to look through today. And we don't know exactly what you have to say in all of these things. But I'm trusting today, God, that you gave us a fresh word. I know for myself, there are times where I don't, I don't know if it's, I'm, I'm prideful. I don't know if it, what it is in me exactly that causes me to defend myself rather than to confess. I do that with you sometimes, God, and forgive me of that. Forgive me that I would continue to walk a dangerous road on a dangerous path that I, in my heart I even know it's not good for me. And yet I, I remain there because of pride or I just don't want to talk to you about it. I don't want you to tell me, hey, I got something better for you than this. I, I struggle in my own brokenness at times. And I certainly have difficulty. And we as your church, Lord, all the time, we have difficulty letting people in and seeing. Wait a minute. There's some stuff not right here, here, and here. I'm not going to shield that anymore. I'm not going to keep saying this is okay. No, I present that to you today. If that's you today, church member, if that's you today, uh, you've come into this building and maybe there's something he's bringing to your mind right now that you just need to, you need to confess to him first. Let him know, Jesus, I, this is something I've been up to and you already know it, but I'm not healed of it, God. I'm not healed of it because I remain in it and I'm not, I'm not laid it at your feet. Here it is, God. You fill in the blank, my friend. This thing I've been doing, God, remove it from my life. I lay it at your feet. I know you've paid for it on the cross, God, but now I'm confessing. I'm agreeing with you. This is not right and it is not best for me. Take it from me. And maybe for some of you in the room, this thing has caused disaster in your relationships. Perhaps today you can make step one on that. Come to your spouse or family member or whoever this is has caused a break between. Say, I know, I know now that I've been a, this, this peace has been a part of the problem. I, I, I confess that to you today. I'm sorry. Would you forgive me of this? God, begin to just pour out healing in your church. Restore relationships that have been broken. Restore fellowship with you as we run from you at times. Lord, restore us to yourself. 
Lord, I'm asking now that, that you would help us to see more and more that walking in you, that's where we get our righteousness, not by our good works. We do good works because of faith in you, not for faith in you, not, not to earn something, but because we are yours, we do them. Because we are loved, we love others, not to earn. Lord, we love you in these things. And we ask now that you would guide our steps, help us to know how to face this week, help us to know how to deal with the challenges that are at our feet right now in a way that is your righteousness and not our own. Perhaps somebody in the room is dealing with some really difficult challenge. And it would seem that justice won't be served and sometimes we want to take those matters into our own hands. God, would you show up in a mighty way and give us wisdom and help us to know how to handle them in a way that you would, not in the way, our own man-made way. God, guide our steps, help us in our conversations. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.